It's time for Drive-By Theology with Dr. Steve Lawson and Todd Friel. You are headed toward the finish line just like the Bible. Welcome to Lecture 35, our final lecture here on Drive-By Theology, talking about eschatology. What does the Bible teach about last things? And of this we can be certain The Bible has always been pointing toward the end times. We make a mistake if we think, well, that's that coming era or dispensation or whatever you want to call it. No, no, no. The Bible has always been moving toward this. It has always been pushing its way toward a conclusion that is certain, and we can prove it because the Old Testament actually talks about eschatology. Isaiah 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. That is so clear. And that was 700 years before any talking about eschatology, so we think in the New Testament. In Isaiah 66, 22, For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, he continues, but the point is, The new heavens and the new earth are described in the Old Testament, and we err if we don't remember that this is what it's always been about. We're headed toward the zenith. We're talking about a climax. This is the pinnacle that we've always been moving toward. So is it safe to say, as we look through redemptive history, creation, that was way cool, the incarnation of Jesus, whoa, walking this earth, Pentecost, big deal, but none of those really are the zenith quite like the return of the conquering king. It is the consummation of the age, and all of the promises of God will find their ultimate fulfillment in this grand crescendo at the end of time. And it seems to me we would do well to focus and agree on that as opposed to some of the eschatological squabbling that I've seen. Look, we've got our differences but we should be rejoicing. This is going to happen. We, we get we get to be at the big kaboom at the end of the age. Yes, this is the big picture, and this is the grand celebration. So let's maybe keep our focus on that as opposed to a lot of the disagreements. Let's take a look at some more of the things on which we agree regarding the Judgment Day, the second coming of Jesus. Here are three things that we can know for sure. It is imminent, it is delayed, it is uncertain. Break it down. Yes. Well, the fact that it is imminent means that Jesus Christ could burst onto the scene at any time, at any moment. He's represented in the Bible by saying, Behold, I am coming quickly. Present tense. He's on the way. James 5 says he's standing right at the door, ready to launch from heaven to the earth. We should be ready. Yes, we better be ready. And also, the second coming is delayed from our human perspective, not from God's, but from ours. And God is awaiting the salvation of all of the elect in his perfect timing. Now, there is no glitch. No glitch. No mistake. We're on plan A. Everything's on schedule. Everything is moving forward to its appointed time. For us, it seems like a long way off, but for God, everything is unfolding exactly as he has planned. To be clear, when you use the word delayed, it sounds like uh, there was snow on the tarmac. No, no. It is delayed only from our perspective. All right, the third element. It is uncertain. 
when we say uncertain, we mean the timing. It is uncertain to us. We do not know when Christ will burst onto the scene and descend from heaven. And so, therefore, again, all the more reason we must be living in a state of readiness for the return of Christ. Matthew twenty four thirty six. This is crystal clear. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Nobody knows the time. And this is a verse that really should guide us through some of the end times signs which we are going to tackle let us first find our biblical support for the three aspects of the expectation of the second coming, and that is the imminence of the return of Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, verse 28, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Romans 16, verse 20 speaks of the imminence of the Lord's return. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is soon, very soon. James 5, verses 8 and 9. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. That is imminent, but I noticed you did not choose certain verses to talk about the imminence of Jesus Christ that look like the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. Matthew 24, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Matthew 10, 23, But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Why would some look at those verses and say, that doesn't have to do with Jesus end times return. Well, in Matthew 10, he's actually referring to the very disciples who are in front of him and talking about the cost of discipleship for believers in this age. So I understand that. Uh, Also, this generation will not pass away, which you quoted earlier. The word generation can refer to a race of people, specifically to the Jewish people. And he could be saying that the nation of Israel will not pass away until the end of the age. And what would, would it be unfair for somebody to say, no, this generation, the people right here? Well, no, that's not unfair. That's a possible interpretation. What does the term preterism mean? That refers to the time of fulfillment in 70 AD at the time of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. There are people who are partial preterists. Yes, whereas some of Matthew 24, the Mount Olivet Discourse, has been fulfilled in 70 AD, and other parts await the end of the age. Are preterists or partial preterists heretics? No, they're not heretics, not per se for that. There are fine people who hold to that position. What about the person who might believe that all of the prophecies, all of the predictions about Jesus' return, including his return, have been fulfilled in 70 AD? Well, I think that that is going too far, personally, and I think that there are prophecies that will find their fulfillment immediately concerning the second coming of Christ. Once again, we see that there are plenty of good theologians who are partial preterists who think some of these things were fulfilled, some of these things are yet to come. This is an area of disagreement where we can disagree amicably. Correct. All right. One of the things, though, that we do agree on is the imminence of Jesus Christ. His return is certain. It is going to happen swiftly when it does, in the twinkling of an eye. 
and yet it's been postponed. What verses support that? Matthew 24, verse 6, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Also, Matthew 24, 14, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Not only those verses, Mark 14, 7 through 9, but also several of the parables of Jesus indicate a delay in Jesus' return, like the parable of the virgins, the parable of the talents, the parable of the servants, the parable of the pounds. Second Peter 3, 3 through 4, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Again, an indication that there's going to be a a time. It's it, it's going to be quick. It's going to be imminent. It's certain. And yet we have a time that is set before us because it is, quote, postponed. And this leads us to the third element of his second coming, which is it is uncertain regarding the time. We don't know. We heard the Bible verse. Jesus made it clear. Nobody knows the hour. Nobody knows the day, which then leads us to ask the question, so what about those end time signs? What do we do with those if the timing is uncertain? Jesus gave us some indicators that the time is near, the end is nigh, and yet at the same time we find, but we don't know for sure what the date is. What do we do with wars and rumors of wars? What do we do with these signs that people have a tendency to read? Well, as we see what is going on in the world around us, I do think that we are to be alert. And as they increase, like birth pangs and their intensity and the suddenness and the closeness with which they come, it should be a wake-up call for us that we may be closer than what we think to the return of Christ. Would it be fair to state it like this? The signs of the end of the age are not given for us to pick a date, but simply to remind us that he is coming back. Yes, So I actually find comfort when I'm looking at the 6 o'clock news going, yikes, everything is just bursting out all over. Instead of going, I think that means he's going to be here before the end of the month. Rather than saying, what's the world coming to? We should be saying, look who's coming to the world. Exactly. So don't use these signs and don't let anybody use the signs as if they are tea leaves to read a date into it. That is not the purpose of the signs. They are actually given to us. They're post-it notes for us. They're a wake-up call. To remind you, he's coming back. Let them actually calm you when you see things that trouble you, when you see the escalation of hatred, children who don't obey their parents, any sign of the end times, we should simply state, oh, good. Jesus is coming back. Yes, and he's coming back soon. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, this sign happened. That means you better send in your check really quick because Jesus is coming back. They should be signs of comfort, really. Bad things happen. Jesus is coming back. A war? Oh, yeah, Jesus is coming back. An earthquake? Oh, yeah, Jesus is coming back. Let the signs, as troubling as they are, comfort you. And his return may be sooner than we think. There are, however, a couple of signs of the end times that are worthy of a little bit more attention. And one of those signs, and you hinted at this a little bit earlier, that the it's a sign of blessing, the end times, when God is coming to judge in that 
He is presently saving a lot of sinners. Yes, there will be a great ingathering of God's elect out of the world, drawing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know there will be a great harvest that is to come at the end of the age. But another sign would be the sign of judgment, specifically that rascally creature, the Antichrist. Who is he? Why is he a sign of judgment? Well, there will be many antichrists throughout the age, but there is coming one final single antichrist, an individual who will be the personification of evil. Matthew 22, 5, Jesus said, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. These are false Christs or antichrists. Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets, Jesus said, will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Also in 1 John 2, verse 18, John writes, Children, it is the last hour, referring to the entire church age. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Okay, just stop right there. There are more verses like 1 John 2, 22, 1 John 4, 2 through 3, 2 John 1, 7. What we see is that there are a lot of antichrists throughout the age to mislead the elect, but ultimately there's going to be one definite antichrist, uh, Nikolai Carpathian. The question is, were the reformers right when they actually identified the Antichrist. I don't think we can tell until the time of the fulfillment occurs. They may be right. They may not be right. And who did the reformers think almost universally believe was the Antichrist? That would be the Pope who sits in Rome. Specifically the office of the papacy because it was ongoing inside the church and seemed to have the earmarks of the Antichrist. They saw him as the greatest false prophet that has ever walked the earth. Some thought it was Islam. Yes, and that is possible as well. All right, so it is not an individual. That we can agree on. Whatever these different Antichrists are, we know that they are misleaders. That we know for a fact. One day, there's going to be one guy who is an antichrist figure, and we should be able to point to him and say, that's the guy right there. Yes. Let us now culminate our drive-by theology presentation, specifically our study of end times things, eschatology, by taking a look at the characteristics of the new world. This is where you and I are going to spend eternity. It starts that the end consummates the kingdom of God. Matthew twenty five thirty four. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That was hinted at in Daniel seven twenty seven, reiterated in Matthew twenty six twenty nine, and loudly shouted in Revelation twenty two five, there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. The characteristics of the new world, it is God's kingdom, and we get to reign in it. Another characteristic of the new world is it consummates the reversal of the effects of our fall into sin. Revelation 22, 2 and 3, On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, 
yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. Also, Revelation 21, 1 and 4, and Genesis 3, 14 through 17. Furthermore, it brings about the renewal of the whole earth. Isaiah 65, 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Matthew nineteen twenty eight, Romans eight nineteen through 21, 2 Peter three thirteen, and Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. You know, you would think that the Bible had unity. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. It goes on, echoing the sentiment in Isaiah, the consummation of the end times, it is cosmic in scope. For the new world will usher in a new physical and bodily existence for redeemed humanity. Romans 8, verse 20 and following, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Our present bodies will be glorified. And the creation is not waiting to die, but to be reborn. And finally, the characteristic of the new world that is the best. We are in the presence of God. Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That should cause all of us, pre-trib, ah, millennial, whatever dispensational, millennialist, post, whatever you are, to that we all say a hearty amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. This was the final lecture of Drive-By Theology.